Hi, this is Dan Millman, and you're listening to Awakened Nation. A huge shift is taking place on planet Earth. People seem to be waking up. Tired of the way things used to be, they are creating something brand new and changing the world we live in. My name is Brad Zalas, and I get to sit down with the next generation of idea makers, the disruptors, and the game changers. Everyday people, just like you and me, from all over, who are doing amazing things. Welcome to Awakened Nation. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a guest I wanted to get on a long time ago because his books change lives. It really does. And uh, when I first read The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, I just it blew my mind. It changed my life. And I really want to welcome Dan Millman to the show. Hi, Dan. Hi, Brad. It's so good to be here with you finally. Same here. Uh, I'm sure you've heard that dozens of times. Your books really do change people's lives. And what it did for me was this. I always saw spirituality as this like separate thing from me. And when I read that first book, it really integrated into me. It's all oneness. You know, you can meditate on that. <laughs> you can sit and intellectually think about it, but that book really brought it all together for me. And I'm sure you've heard that before. Am I right? I have. I've heard many things over time. And when people have said, gee, your first book changed my life, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, um, I often ask them, what do you mean by that? And it's come down to a shift in perspective. Uh, it expanded their sense of the, the promise and possibilities of uh, within everyday life. Yeah, that's the, that's the key, I believe. I'm going to read a little bit of your bio to get started. So those of you who uh, are listening who don't know who Dan Mailman is, uh, Dan teaches the peaceful warrior's way in the United States and around the world. Author of 18 books. I was blown away when I saw that. Author of 18 books published in 29 languages. Millman is a former world champion athlete, university coach, martial arts instructor, and a college professor. Uh, you might know him best from his international bestseller, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, which was adapted into a feature film starring Nick Nolte. Millman and his wife, Joy, live in Brooklyn, New York. And uh, you can get a hold of Dan at peacefulwarrior.com. Uh, yeah, I bet um, you could not have dreamed that Nick Nolte would play Socrates <laughs> in a movie when you first wrote the book. Am I correct? You are quite correct. Uh, I, I guess George Carlin or some other actors might have played it differently, but Nick did a nice job. And it's always a, an interesting experience having a book adapted to film. Um, yeah. Yeah. It is. So let's get started. And uh, we had uh, Julian Noel on the show in the first season, and he's from Australia. And he said something that just stuck in there. And uh, he's, he apologized for using the word spiritual. And uh, I think it it's because it has so many connotations in this day and age. Could you explain what spirituality or spiritual actually means for you? Uh, it is a tricky term because it means different things to different people, um, like love or enlightenment. And in fact, in the, in the opening, opening pages, uh, there's a single page of key terms in my new book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, the memoir. Um, and it starts with spiritual. And I came across this organically, this idea of spiritual, this grounded interpretation 
when I asked my daughter, who's a grown author herself now, but when she was 10 years old, a voracious reader, I asked Sierra, um, can you make me a little list of uh, books, of spiritual books, books that you consider spiritual? And for a 10-year-old, she came up with a nice list of about uh, eight or nine books, and not a single one of them dealt with metaphysics, new age, religious beliefs, shamanism. All of them were books that inspired and uplifted her. And, and to inspire means to breathe in spirit. And, and this is a, a term, that which inspires or uplifts, we can handle in everyday life. What inspires or uplifts us gives us that sense of the numinous. It reminds us somehow of the best within us and the possibilities of life. And in terms of spirit, you know, the weather person doesn't come on the radio saying uh, 30% chance of rain today and 25% spirit out. I mean, we're <laughs> surrounded by spirit, beauty, inspiration, but we often don't notice it because we're preoccupied with what am I going to do about my relationship, my finances, my career decisions. Our attention is trapped until maybe we go on vacation to a whole different environment or do what the Japanese call forest bathing, walking through a natural environment. Then we regain for a moment the eyes of a child where we begin to look up and around. Wow. Wow. Um, and, and so then we, we grasp spirit in the moment. In fact, um, I have a quote underneath that definition in the opening pages. Uh, Adair Laura said, some like me are just beginning to guess at the powerful religion of ordinary life, a spirituality of freshly mopped floors, stacked dishes, and clothes blowing on the line. So that is my sense of spiritual within and, and through our everyday life. It's ironic that you had that quote because I, uh, I use doing the dishes by hand as my Zen moment. Yeah. And sometimes I get some amazing ideas from that. Um, it is practical day-to-day -day spirituality uh, mm -hmm. that you're talking about. And it, it isn't this, I'm going to climb a mountain uh, and then I'm going to find a guru. Uh, you know, Somerset Maugham wrote about it in The Razor's Edge, how you, know, you could find a guru you know, in, in the city as easily on top of a mountain. And I've always found that to be true. It's a state of beingness that I think really came out in the title of your latest book, which is The Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, because I've always considered myself a warrior of life, maybe not on the battlefield or whatever, um, right. but it was really my barometer, Dan, uh, I have to be honest with you, was always to, if I was out of balance there was something that always caught my attention to pull me back. And sometimes that would be anger. Uh, you know, I, I grew up with a father who was very angry, always smoldering. The idol was on, you know, ready to go. And so I learned to push anger away to the point of being embarrassed by it. And through the years, I embraced that dark side and pulled that in closer to me to heal it, actually. And do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because one of the oh, questions yeah. I wanted to talk to you about was, do you ever get angrier and how do you deal with that? Mm, sure. Well, my dear wife of 46 years, Joy, knows how to push my buttons. So sure, I get irritated, <laughs> angry, um, but it doesn't last long anymore. I have an entirely different relationship today based on the four mentors I was trained by um, over a 20-year period as described in the new book. And mm -hmm. the, the fourth mentor, the sage, uh, gave me some reminders that I, I love to share about yeah. anger, fear, sorrow, 
joy, all the other emotions. Emotions pass through us like the weather, just as thoughts arise and pop into our conscious awareness. They happen to us. We don't, we don't say, I think I'll think this thought next. Random thoughts just appear, uh, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. But we have less control over what, you know, we don't have a spam filter in our head to stop certain thoughts. Yeah. And, nor do we, nor can we control by our will and say, I'm not going to feel what I'm feeling right now. The feelings pass anyway, just like the weather. So, um, you know, I, I spoke with an inmate in San Quentin once. I was uh, speaking to groups there in the Inside Prison Project when I lived in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was an inmate who said to me, I have a problem with rage. And I went, no, you don't. And he said, yes, I do. <laughs> and I said, no, you don't. And before he could start blowing up, I said, anger is not a problem. Rage is not a problem. It's like a storm passing through us. I said, the problem is what you actually do when you're feeling enraged. And a light bulb went on for him because he realized, yeah, that's what was the problem. Not feeling anger, not feeling fear or sorrow. You know, Customato, a boxing coach, once said, Heroes and cowards feel exactly the same fear. They just respond differently. So the emphasis after my time with the sage is more on behavior. Um, Anger management courses don't manage anger. They manage behavior. What will we do when we're feeling angry? Because you can't stop emotions from happening. They just pass through us any more than we can stop the weather. So that's a, a longish answer, but I hope provides a context, this whole question of anger. Oh, it's a powerful answer. Thank you. Yeah, it is what you do with it. The difference between the hero and the coward. Yeah, you nailed it. Um, you did talk about this in the book, the the four mentors that you had, the professor, the guru, the warrior priest, and the sage. And um, I'm going to ask you, how did you find these teachers and uh, how can others find their own teachers like this? Yes, it's an important question. And again, to provide some context. Uh, You'll see where I'm going in a moment. When I was young, I was very much into self-improvement. I, did, I studied memory courses. I read books on word power. Um, I studied speed reading and uh, speed arithmetic. Uh, I learned sleight of hand, ventriloquism. Um, I just loved to learn. And I was mm-hmm. always improving myself. But until one day I realized no matter how much I improved myself, only and there's nothing wrong with that. It's better for the planet to improve ourselves. But I realized only one person benefited, but if I could reach out and somehow influence other people, and at the time I had no idea how, I was fairly young still. I hadn't written or taught or just, I was a gymnast. But if I could touch the lives of other people somehow, that made my life more meaningful. And I think that commitment from this early on to share what I'd learned with other people, really that was my calling as a teacher. And because of that commitment, I think it opened me up to looking around for uh, the wise in many different fields. I collected quotations for probably 50 years now. Um, I, have thou- I have over a thousand pages of selected quotations that are the most witty, wise ones I could find. And I also was looking around for role models. We've all had role models and teachers we remember from school, one or two or three that inspired us and demanded our best. Um, so we've, I'm not unique in this. But I happened to come across over a 20-year period, one after the next, radically different mentors who helped shape my life and represent 
various approaches to the quest, our search for fulfillment. I believe we're all on a spiritual quest, whether or not we use those words. Whether it's conscious or unconscious, everyone is seeking a deeper sense of fulfillment, satisfaction, meaning, purpose in life. And so really we share this quest because I wouldn't have written the memoir assuming legions of people want to read about this Dan Millman character. But because it's about our shared quest and may shed light on that and offer some useful encouragement and guidance and some cautionary tales as well, um, that's why I ended up writing the book. Wow. Well, you're an inspiration, I got to tell you. Um, you know, maybe we see you and ourselves reflected in you, but uh, it really has helped. All your books have Thank been um, transformational. Well, and uh, I'm going to ask this question because, you know, when I wrote my very first book, it was a business book. I started where I could start. I combined a lot of my personal stories and spirituality and things in that book. Mm -hmm. And I realize if everybody took a pen and paper and wrote down what Dan just recommended that you do, I had to do this, Dan, and you just actually talked about it. And that is I actively sought out experiences and teachers that would teach me so I could share it. And when I did that, even the mundanest moments, even the most mundane moment, let's say standing online at the grocery store <laughs> became a story. And I started jotting down on notepads, sometimes it was just one sentence or a title. And I was right back in that moment. Did that happen to you? I mean, it seems like that's what happened. You, you just opened yourself up to life teaching you. Well, life, of course, is a series of moments. We each have neurotic moments and, and stable moments and intelligent moments. I've had some pretty dumb moments too. I relate them, some of them in the book. My, ask my daughters. So we all have these different moments, enlightened moments and maybe ignorant moments. Um, so uh, we change over time. You know, somebody came up to me once and said, Dan, you seem like a nice guy. I said, sometimes, because sometimes this, sometimes that, that's realistic. We're not just this one thing all the time in changing circumstances. But I, nonetheless, I view each of us and all of us as peaceful warriors in training. And the reason I say that is, well, let me go back. When I was a, a professor at Oberlin College, uh, we, you know, off air, we were talking about your martial arts background uh, right. you know, late, late in life. And mm -hmm. I was teaching a course because I'd taken many martial arts. I was a bullied kid. I was small um, and the, the younger one of my class. And I talked too much, a lifelong habit, <laughs> which probably <laughs> attracted the attention of some bullies. I should thank, write them thank you letters if I knew them today, because mm -hmm. that generated an interest in the martial arts. Yeah. And so after all the, the studies I did in, in uh, a little boxing and then uh, judo and karate, Okinawan style, Okinawate, wow. think Mr. Miyagi. Um, yes. And, and then finally Aikido and, and Tai Chi. I taught a course at Oberlin um, in Aikido and Tai Chi, a, an introductory course. And I was going to call it the way of the warrior, which makes sense. Right. But then I realized they were internal arts. They, they were a more receptive arts. They weren't uh, aggressive arts. And so a light bulb went on and I said, wait, why don't I call it the way of the peaceful warrior? And that's the first time organically that term appeared to me. And I ended up using that as the title of the book uh, years later. Um, and what I mean by this, this term is that 
Each of us is a peaceful warrior in training in the sense that we're all seeking to live with a more peaceful heart, a sense of serenity, equanimity within the changing chaos of everyday life. Many of us, it's been unavoidable to notice in recent years. Um, but at the same time, as you pointed out, Brad, we need a warrior spirit. It's not about fighting necessarily, except maybe with the demons of self-doubt, insecurity, and various kinds of fear. But it's really about rolling up our sleeves, standing up tall inside of ourselves, and marching into life and tackling the everyday challenges we meet. So that balance, peaceful heart, warrior spirit, seemed like a natural title for the new book and my life. Thank you. Well, it's, it, it is fantastic to hear your journey. And, uh, you know, I've seen some of your gymnastic competition, uh, phenomenal athlete. I didn't grow up as a natural athlete. Um, so your books really helped me to just embrace and shut off the mind, go with the flow. Uh, when you tell that story in the beginning of the book where um, you were doing the trampoline, you won one of the first trampoline medals and your mind just went, but because you had played with a friend on the trampoline, you just went into this no mind, which a lot of martial artists talk about, and you just enjoyed the performance and did, you don't even remember what you did. I'm sure you had to look at the film later. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have time to really uh, enjoy. I was just completely in the zone later in reflection. Yes, it was enjoyable. That moment of silence, that moment of truth. Um, and yes, the book opens up, the first chapter is up in the air and upside down appropriately right. uh, at the World Championships in, in London. But who would have guessed, you know, I, I, you know, I discovered a trampoline when I was a, a, a tween uh, before my teenage years and started jumping. And I loved jumping and trying new moves. I never knew that would take me into toward world-class gymnastics and, and then coaching at Stanford University and then a college professorship. I had no concept of any of that when I was a kid, but I did follow, trust my heart, followed my nose and just did what I loved to the best of my ability. And that's pretty much, you know, that was a foundation. And I cover some of the foundational elements in my life before I meet the four mentors uh, and the, the spiritual quest was started to really hit white water, so to speak. Right. Um, but those early years in athletics for me, and for some people it's music, or working, doing a drum line, for example. Right. Um, for some people, that is their entry into spiritual life, into the zone, into flow, the, the, the mindless mushin uh, state, as they say in, the martial, in Bushido, in the martial mm -hmm. arts. Um, and it's a beginner's form of meditation. Because when you're doing gymnastics, you're not thinking about breakfast, you know, when you're flying around the high bar, or yeah. dinner that night, or what you're going to do in the past or future. But the hard part is in everyday life, when we're just sitting quietly in meditation or walking around to also focus in the same way, that becomes the big challenge. It is. It's, it's um, guidance for living life in a day-to-day, -day, you know, moment-to-moment -moment, uh, way. The peaceful warrior, yeah, you're right. It's not about fighting. And, you know, although we do have martial arts backgrounds, I feel that it's all integrated into oneness and uh i have to thank you because your your writings and your teachings have helped me with that well i, I appreciate that and sure. in fact i'd like to share a quick story with you please uh, to, ma to make that point um 
the story I tell, Socrates and I are in the gym late at night and, and I'm recovering from a shattered leg I describe in my first book. Um, and it's coming back. I'm getting my strength back. And I was swinging around the high bar. And, and while he's watching, he's the only other one in the gym. I do a full twisting double somersault, which is a hard move. But I stick my landing, which is a good thing. I don't hop or anything or take a step. And I go, yes. And, and then I figured that was a good place to stop workout. So I ripped off my sweatshirt, threw it in my workout bag. And then we were walking down the hallway after. And Sock turned to me and he says, you know, Dan, that last movie you did was really sloppy. And I went, what are you talking about, Sock? That was the best dismount I did in weeks. He said, oh, no, no, no. I'm not talking about the dismount. I'm talking about the way you took off your sweatshirt and put it in your bag. And he was reminding me again that I was treating one moment as special and another moment as ordinary, like it didn't matter. And then he reminded me again, there are no ordinary moments. And he added something. He added a line that I actually got into the movie script uh, uh, two weeks before they started shooting to the director's credit. Um, he said, Dan, the difference between us is you practice gymnastics. I practice everything. Now, <laughs> what, what did he mean by that? Well, right. practice. See, well, most of us do things all day. We do the laundry. We do our work. We do our homework. Uh, we do the dishes. We do all these things. But as soon as we say the word practice, that implies we're trying to refine it or improve it. And that brings a different quality of attention to everything we do. Some people call it mindfulness. That's become a thing, you know. Um, but that quality of attention and practicing everything can create the same sort of involvement and immersion that practicing gymnastics or drumming or any, any other uh, activity can bring us into that state where time flies and we start having more enjoyable moments. In other words, every moment is sacred. You just need as the viewer to consciously stay aware of that. Of course, and it I, sounds exhausting, you know, oh my God, <laughs> yes. every moment I've got to be thinking about this, but you, you don't, it's just a matter of, um, uh, I, I used to tell the gymnasts at Stanford, don't strive for success. You can't control that. Strive for excellence in all that you do. That's under our control. Just make your best effort. It'll change day to day, moment to moment. But do whatever you do. I'm sharing with you now. I'm speaking and I'm practicing. Let me ask you this, you know, because, you know, I'm getting into that age where, okay, I'm, I'm going to be a teacher. You know, you, you talk about phases in life, you know, you're the, the warrior, the athlete, the, all this, and then you become an instructor and a teacher and you kind of give back what you've learned. Mm -hmm. um, you say this, it's like, does it take a lifetime to achieve a peaceful heart and a warrior spirit? Or is it something that you can step into instantaneously? Both. Um, you can only do it in this moment. <clears throat> you can't do it in the future because the future never comes. It's always in our imagination what the future is going to be. You can't do it in the past, certainly, because that's just a set of memories uh, that we bring, we drag with us into the present. But mm -hmm. all we have is this moment of power. So we're, in a sense, behaving like a peaceful warrior with a peaceful heart, warrior spirit in this moment, or we're not. And yet, I'm still practicing. I retained a beginner's mind. I point out some humorous stories in the book where I'm definitely still learning. Um, 
And so it is also a lifetime practice in the abstract, but really it's always, everything happens in this moment. By the way, uh, I recommend everybody go watch Dan's Ted talk, by the way, he does this amazing handstand, uh, on the chair and, uh, yeah, it was just insightful. Um, you talked about, um, in peaceful heart, um, peaceful heart, warrior spirit, the true story of my spiritual quest, you corrected some of the things that you had written previously. And, uh, if you could just explain some of that, because it's such a powerful journey as an author, as you're getting across certain things, and then you realize your consciousness changes as you get older, especially, I don't think the way I used to when I was 20. And so I look back on some of that. What, what was some of that that you wanted to, to set the record straight? Hmm. Well, I, I began this sense of reflection uh, in 2006 when the movie came out. I realized with a sense of urgency, I would need to write a companion book to Way of the Peaceful Warrior, and I called it Wisdom of the Peaceful Warrior. And what I did mm-hmm. was I took about 100 teaching incidents in the first book with Socrates holding forth, And I clarified from a viewpoint 25 years later that I understood better than when I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. So that began the process of reflection, which was completed in this culminating book, uh, The True Story. Um, And and for example, one of the elements I would like to clarify, we've all heard the saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. But many people interpret that as somehow when they're deserving enough or have suffered enough, or prepared enough, then a teacher like Socrates will appear to guide them or kick them up the path. But actually what I think it means is when the student is ready or actually paying attention, the teacher appears everywhere, maybe in a cloud passing over. I tell a story in the book about how I learned a valuable lesson that shifted my behavior from watching a cloud drift across the sky. Um, It can happen in watching a tree bend in the wind. It can happen uh, at a cafe. Uh, The barista might do something and you notice they're meditating their way to making your latte or whatever it is, your chai. Um, So there's there's daily life. I I view earth as a school for souls, a divine school. Um, And do I know that's true cosmically? No, I can't know that, but I view it that way. And daily life is our classroom. Uh, lessons repeat themselves until we learn them. Most of us have noticed that. And if we don't learn the easy lessons, they get more dramatic as they are today. So we're always learning, always living, and that's just how it is. And we need to accept that process. It is a powerful um, path. Tao, you know, the Tao. Yeah, the Tao. The path. Um, Yeah. Very powerful insights. Your books, um, they do change lives. And I have to be honest with you, every time I read your, one of your books, uh, I was transported and then I got the lesson. So thank you on that. Um, I want to ask you um, real quickly, which of the, the teachers did you feel you learned the most from? Because each one has a profound how can we say je ne sais quoi, uh, as the French would say, but each one has a profound way and methodology of teaching and our receivership of that. Well, I, because they were ra- radically different in, in their approach, all representing or each representing a different 
style, different content. Let me give an example. The professor was my first uh, formal mentor. And through a series of coincidences, uh, a random phone call I made, a friend who had just completed an amazing training, uh, 40 days, 10 hours a day. Now, who has time for that now? Right. Um, but it was intensive. And it was called the ARICA, A-R-I-C-A. It's the word America without the me in it, by coincidence. Mm -hmm. um, and it's named after a city in Chile, uh, next to the Atacama Desert, where a man named Oscar Ichazo taught. And he's the man I called the professor. And his school uh, gathered together a global heritage, not just Hindu teachings or Vedanta, not just Chinese teachings, uh, or Sufi teachings or the Japanese Zen teachings, but a global heritage he had studied in depth, very unusual background. And so this training involved 30 or 40 different sorts of meditations for different purposes, deep body work, a movement training, combining breathing and focus and attention, models of maps of consciousness, the levels of consciousness, uh, how we deal with tension and stress relief, uh, many maps, but experiential. And with the group process, it accelerated our own evolution. We really worked in depth. Um, also, for example, uh, some people have heard of the Enneagram books. And, um, you know, Helen Palmer and Stephen Riso mm -hmm. and others are the best known authors. But all this modern Enneagram material was an adaptation from Oscar Ichazo. They actually admitted that, all of the, uh, the authors finally admitted, yes, um, they, they said it was from Gurdjieff or the Sufis or the Jesuits, but actually Oscar Ichazo, the professor, began this model. He called it proto-analysis. I, I learned later on to look at people's faces and even lighting and determine based on the nerves connecting the face to the brain, they're one of nine points of sensitivity, unconscious strategies of life. So I'm just giving a flavor, but the point is the professor gave an immersive technological approach to enlightenment. He promised enlightenment at the end of this training. Do the work, get the results. And it was intensive work. Um, and many of us have experienced this. Some method we've studied, whether NLP or Avatar or EST, the old EST training. Yeah, I remember. Spinoffs, the mm -hmm. forum and, and LifeSpring. There have been so many different trainings and systems and methods uh, that if you do this work, uh, then you'll be um, live a more enlightened life. So that was one approach. And for various reasons, I found it wanting. Uh, I was going through a very difficult first marriage. I was married for eight years. I got married around 20 years old, 21. And we had, uh, a, 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 it never took, but, uh, but persistence carried us for almost eight years. We had a daughter from that marriage. I'm very close to her and I'm still in good communication with my former wife. Um, but I noticed all that training made me better at doing inner work. But mm. there was a firewall between that, no matter how good the training was, between that and my everyday life. So that was the first takeaway lesson for me that to get better at daily life, you have to practice daily life, not sit in a cave somewhere. You know, a man came up to me after reading Way of the Peaceful Warrior and said, Dan, I'm really interested in spiritual practice now after reading your book, but I have a wife and three kids and a full-time job. How can I find the time? Well, he came to understand 
that his wife, his children, his full-time job were, were his primary forms of spiritual training and practice in everyday life. And they demand more and develop more than sitting in a cave and meditating. I know this because I've done both. <laughs> so that was the technology approach with the professor before I moved on and discovered the guru. I'm going to ask you this question, and I think you're going to agree with me, but some of us begin to awaken early in life, like childhood. You talked about being bullied as a kid, um, picked on, uh, being a gymnast and embracing the martial arts. Those all were uh, helped uplift, but you also paid attention. Would you say that you were somebody who was awake early in life? Like you, you saw stuff and your friends didn't. Hmm. Well, I, I was awake in some ways and really asleep in others. Uh, yeah. If ignorance is bliss, I was ecstatic, <laughs> <laughs> I, but, but I did wake up to the extent, Brad, where I looked around and said, what are the rules here? What is, what is, what is it all for? You know, I was more tunnel vision, uh, just pushing forward through life, through my schooling, early schooling, first grade, second grade, and on, like most people. But I, at one point, I stepped back and said, but what is it? Was it at all for? And maybe it was the, the threshold of adolescence when I realized that. And I started collecting quotations, looking for wisdom. And that was the beginning. So I, I was waking up. Waking up isn't always pleasant. Oh, um, no. In fact, uh, under, under the key terms, um, enlightenment, and illumination, which is about awakening to reality. It's a realization, and it's even a practice. Uh, Carl Jung, the noted psychoanalyst, said, enlightenment consists not merely in the seeing of luminous shapes and visions, but in making the darkness visible. The latter procedure, he, he added, is more difficult and therefore unpopular. So, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a good reminder. Awakening isn't always pleasant because you have to yeah. see uh, the darkness first. Yeah, it. You said a mouthful. I have to be honest with you, because <laughs> um, growing up as a kid, uh, my mother was bipolar, mm -hmm. uh, and my father he was wow. sort of an enabler and uh, was angry all the time. Uh, and uh, I mean, I have great funny stories now to this day because I can look back on that, and it's healed. But the reality is, is those things forced me, and I'm sure some of the things that you went through in life forced you to grow up quickly. And today I have friends who are going through things I went through at 10, <laughs> you know, so there is no, you know, cur set curriculum. No. Many of them are reaching out to ask me how I dealt with those things. Do you find that true nowadays? Like some people are, are calling upon your wisdom and it's really something you learned at you know, 18, you know, that that's the very profound part about your book, by the way, I, I learned from each of the moments in your life. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, let me say first that your spiritual training began early on having a bipolar, a mother with bipolar uh, is wow. You know, I, I view everyday life just in a normal everyday life yeah. as a form of spiritual weight training because of the adversities, the difficulties, the physical, emotional, and mental pain we can experience. The fact that you got this as a child 
yeah. and clearly responded in a, in a constructive way. Uh, you know, they say life will lift you up or grind you down, depending on yeah. your response. And so that was the beginning uh, of your training. I had a family member who was uh, doing, was suffering and it, it was hard. I, I described one uh, incident where my sister is slammed the door and is crying in her room and I'm standing outside a little kid and I'm crying too. Um, out of some kind of empathy, I could do nothing. And it, it started my interest in how do people tick? What makes them do what they do? Yeah. Uh, why is she unhappy? We, we lived in an intact home, loving parents, but you know, households, nobody's perfect. That's why Ram Das said, you think you're enlightened? Go visit your parents. <laughs> that is true. Um, go sit at Thanksgiving dinner and see how enlightened you are. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. I had somebody, they, they knew my dad and as he got uh, older in life, I would come visit him and they would sit with me and we were hanging out and they said, I don't think you can spend more than four hours here at a time. And I go, why? And they go, you're drained. <laughs> and yeah. Um, let, let's add that to the spiritual lessons boundaries. <laughs> right. Exactly. It, exactly. It's very powerful, powerful yeah. with what you do. The next question I want to, I want to delve into is, some of the more esoteric things that maybe you don't get a chance to talk about, but do you have a favorite memory through all of this? Well, of course, what came up for me after writing a memoir, you know, one memory, <laughs> I have many favorite memories. Um, there was a time I was sitting on a curb in Berkeley, California on Telegraph Avenue, anybody who knows Berkeley, uh, I had an hour or so before workout that afternoon. Uh, I, my studies were caught up and I was just, my mind was free. And I just bought a grapefruit and peeled it and was eating these chunks of grapefruit uh, in this warm day. Cars were driving in front of me and, and uh, car exhaust. And there was some litter blowing in the streets, but suddenly for no reason I can describe, it was an ordinary, apparently ordinary moment. Suddenly I looked up and everything was absolutely perfect. I mean, suddenly it just, I don't know where that came from, but the litter was perfect. The car exhaust was perfect. I was perfect. The entire world was perfect. Even though the Vietnam War was raging and there were problems in the world, but I couldn't conceive of that other than a perfect part of our human evolution unfolding. Now, that was an uh, apparently just mundane moment sitting on a curb, but that's one of those memories that stood out. It was a, a preview of possibility. And it's an interesting exercise I sometimes give people in training, just to say whenever you're having a difficulty or pushing against something or something's pushing against you, just ask yourself the question, in what way might this be perfect? And see if any answers come. It's a way to look at our lives instead of this shouldn't be happening, you know? Powerful exercise. I hope everybody's taking notes because uh, I agree with this one. This There are moments where I try to shut the mind off. And that's hard when you live in the Western world. <laughs> um, but I try to shut the mind off. I just moved to Denver, Colorado. And we have a skateboard park right nearby. Mm -hmm. So I get a chance to walk the dog and just like go. 
uh, I lived in Las Vegas for about three, four years and I would climb the mountains over there. I just, you know, go on a nice hike up to Calico basin. Uh, and it's, it's just profound. Sometimes those moments where we just shut it all off, you know, uh, and that, that it's so hard for people in this day and age. That's why I shut off the news. I don't watch the news. I haven't watched the news in 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I get my news from people who want to call me up and complain. <laughs> That's how I get my news. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, have you ever had regrets? Maybe you did this or you didn't do that. Cause I know, you know, as a spiritual person, we all say, Oh, I have no regrets. I went for it all. But do, do you have anything you wish you had done better uh, or tried differently? Well, um, I have learning moments from my past, things that I would do differently today, perhaps. But it's not exactly a regret because I can't change the past. Actually, I do know a way to change the past. Would you like to hear it? Yes, please. Okay. Share with us. Um, bring all you've got to the present moment because the present will soon become your past. So that's <laughs> the only way I know of to change the past is what mm-hmm. you do now will soon become it. Um, so I don't know about uh, uh, regrets exactly, but there are times uh, I, I probably uh, would be wiser now in terms of spending more time with my first daughter. It's tough for kids when their parents have become divorced and they may move uh, away from each other. I made that choice because of my own quest and search. Um, and so I only saw my daughter from the time she was six to maybe 16 or 17, less than I would have liked. Um, and so, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, we all make mistakes. Hopefully we learn from them. Um, so that's one thing I, I could share. And, and there are others too. Um, but yeah. So by the way, uh, I, I did want to comment, yes. you know, there's another approach to trying to quiet the mind. We've all experienced that in moments mm-hmm. of immersion, whether it's through a sport, playing a musical instrument, performing, watch, doing a video game where right. our mind is quiet. We're just absorbed in whatever we're doing. But rather than that, I have a different approach. To me, it's a form of liberation. Um, Understanding what I do about random thoughts in the mind, it's perfectly normal. It's like just background noise. Thoughts come, thoughts go. So rather than trying to tell them, you know, the best way I know of to become obsessed with something is try not to think it all day. (laughs) Um, we, We can't do that. So... I just allow the mind to be what it is. I'm no longer trying to fix it or change it. It just kind of goes like a friend who babbles a lot. And I go, yeah. mm -hmm." (laughs) Meanwhile, I have something to do now. Excuse me. Um, So that's the way I tame the mind, not trying to fight or wrestle with it. Yeah. I uh, did stand-up comedy in New York City. You should Ah. appreciate this, living in New York for about eight years. I went from... Uh, a C-level executive to turning my back on all of that and just doing comedy. And I remember my first comedy coach was uh, Tim Davis. And he said something incredibly profound. He just said, the mind will lie to you. And so whenever a negative thought would come up, especially when you're about to go on stage in front of, you know, 75 drunks in a comedy club, uh, Wow. My mind would go, why are you doing this? <laughs> what, what are you? And I would just go, shut up. I know you're lying. And it's, 
I like how you uh, liken your mind chatter to like the crazy Uncle Jerry sitting in the corner at Christmas, you know, kind of thing. It's like, hey, that's great. I got to go over here and do something. <laughs> right. And, and, and I, yeah, I think when they all do this, you know, whenever you start meditating or you go to a spiritual class, they go, we have to quiet the mind. Um, and you're right. It's not something you fight. No. Um, by the way, wow. Doing stand-up comedy, what a form of tr- spiritual training, character oh, building. Oh, that that it doesn't get much tougher than that. You've really taken on this lifetime some uh, interesting yeah. uh, uh, training methods. Thank you. Uh, yeah, wow. I look um, back on it and I go, yeah. um, well, I, uh, very quickly, I, I uh, started opening for these headlining comedians like uh, uh-huh. Lisa Lampanelli and Tom Rhodes and people who were famous. And you either get good are you get knocked down, especially Lisa Limpinelli's audiences, because um, they were there for sh- they were they were sharks out for out for the kill. Uh, so it, but like you, that training added up to the work I'm doing today. That training helped me be funny in in a very stressful situation. So when I go to do a keynote speech in front of oil riggers and executives who are in the oil industry, tough guys, I can make them laugh hysterically. That training really helped me Oh, big time. Who was it? Apparently in the apocryphal story, somebody was dying and he said his last words were, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. Yes. You've heard that, of course. (laughs) It's so true. But thank you. Uh, I don't know what was going through my head, but I just, I really... You know, I was getting an inner nudge, you know, spirit, my the, my higher self, whatever, that mm-hmm. says you must do this first. And it broke down something very powerful. Maybe you can talk about this, but I grew up in a small town where perfection, you know, people looked at you and you had to be dressed a certain way, carry yourself a certain way, hair has to be certain, all this stuff. Comedy broke that. Mm-hmm. So I could be free and clear to whom I want it to be on stage and the true essence come out rather than this. And, and you don't know it until you cross that bridge that you have this thin membrane. That's like, Oh, I can't do that. People might think this, but would you like to talk about that a little bit? Because your story is very profound. You're the height of the gymnast. You're the hot star and you break uh, your, your, you know, your um, hip and your leg in a motorcycle accident. Correct. Yes. Explain that a little bit because there's that the moment where you're the winner and something knocks you down where you kind of have to go, okay, what's new here? What 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 do I need to learn? And was that just pure ego? And what what was it? You know, and you learn something very different from that loss, that that moment where you get knocked on your ass. Sorry to swear, but you get knocked. It it changed my life. On the other hand, I don't recommend fractures as a method of personal (laughs) development. But in my case, yes, uh, I was at the peak of my form. I was aiming for the Olympic team, um, uh, the team, our college team, a national championship. And then one evening I was driving home on a motorcycle around dusk. And uh, I depict this in my first book, which was a very true part of the first book, which mixed fact and fiction way of the peaceful warrior mm-hmm. um, and also in the movie it's depicted and shown and it 
it certainly the, the word the term disruption is a big one in the business community now you know disruption right. and it disrupted right. my life I, and it put me in that place of total uncertainty i had no idea whether i'd ever recover the doctor said you shouldn't be able to walk normally again but it took a year just to walk normally again wow. um, and i trained i i did you know upper body strength i did all i could to heal it until a year later, they took a titanium rod out of the middle of my whole thigh bone. And they said, well, it's either healed fully or, or it'll break again, but it should be okay. And then I started training in earnest to come back so our team might win the national championships. And that's part of the true story. Um, but yes, it, it put me in that not knowing space, that in-between space. And it, it catapulted me out of the 20-something uh, know-it-all phase of most 20-somethings, the bulletproof phase, and it made me more thoughtful and reflective. It shook me up. I started asking bigger questions about life. And I probably wouldn't be speaking with you or having this conversation with you if that had never happened. I mm. might be some sports announcer or who knows what. Right. Um, but it changed the course of my life. So... You know, the old good luck, bad luck story. Many yeah. of us have heard it. And, and it was both yeah. bad luck and good luck. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Because, the, you know, a lot of times I think young people look at us that are older and they think, oh, you got it all. You did the, you win and you, you whatever. The reality is to get here, there's another story. And that story usually, you know, I say this all the time. I have failed four times, maybe more for every success I've had. Mm -hmm. And that um, has just been profound in humbling me uh, and not getting too excited when I have those highs and not getting uh, too low when it's low. I know that it always, you know, this too shall pass as right. they always say. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. Well, that's like perspective. That. Yeah, that's the perspective we've gained. Yeah. You know, I have more life to look back on than forward to now. I turn 76 next week. Uh, wow. Yeah. And, and so um, it's given me perspective about my life. They say you can only understand life uh, looking backwards, but you have to live it forwards. So um, you have those experiences and you can talk about, you know, the failures. And I used to fail 50 times a day in the gym. But failure was just all part of the process until I achieved some success and learned a new move, for example. Mm -hmm. So that was a metaphor of life. And we can talk about that. But I'll tell you, Brad, my heart goes out to young people today. Yeah. People who are just trying to build their way and find their way into life and a career. Um, you know, those elders among us say, well, you know, the difference between us is I've been a youth and you haven't been my age yet. But you know what? We were youths in a very different time. Yeah. Today is more complicated. And so that is their training. They're going through right now, um, not just with the pandemic and, and the current events mm -hmm. today, but yesterday and tomorrow. Or they have to find their way into life, into a changing world. Uh, they may be working in jobs that haven't been invented yet. They have climate change to deal with and everything else. So my heart goes out and I do everything I can to offer these reminders to young people in these perspectives. That's profound. Uh, and I agree with you. Uh, they live in a much more confusing time. Uh, life was simpler when you and I were growing up. 
by the way, the hats off to you. You look fantastic and you're still in amazing shape because, uh, you know, you take it seriously. Um, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions so my guests get to know you better because sure. I know a lot of people want to really uh, listen to this podcast. Um, what lessons do you feel you still need to learn, Dan? Well, for one thing, in terms of teaching and expressing myself, how to say what I have to say in fewer words. That's more than I'm working on. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, um, I'm a big fan of Frank Herbert, who wrote Dune. Yes. And I, I re, Dune is the only book I read probably um, once every couple of years. I just have to read it. It's a masterwork. And um, I'm astounded at how he doesn't waste a single word. Yeah. It's powerful. It's amazing. Um, I'm going to ask you one more question. Well, sure. I have two, actually. Um, okay. What do we know about you that we don't know about you? I tend to be self-absorbed. Uh, my wife is very other-directed. She's uh -huh. a support person for everyone. And so it, our, our partnership has worked beautifully that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm self-aware enough to know about this self-absorption. Uh, I grew up with a sense that uh, I was the star of the movie and everyone else was a supporting character. Yeah. So that's not something I particularly like about myself, but it's part of the qualities of my personality. So I, I'm, I'm dealing with that. So I have to uh, share that openly. I completely understand. I was raised as an only kid. And so, yeah, <laughs> uh, the echoes in the back of my head of my mom and dad, you aren't the center of the universe, Bradley. So, you know, I met, I met an old girlfriend at a, uh, like a 10 or 20 year high school reunion. Yeah. And I proceeded to tell her about all the books I was writing and the teachings I did around the world and so on. And when I finished, she said, Dan, she said, some people are so interesting and others are so interested. <laughs> oh, well, that took me down a peg. It was a good lesson. It is. <laughs> and my last question for you, when you leave this life, is there one thing that you want others, uh, something that you want to leave behind for us? Well, I have to say, uh, if I died today, the next moment, tomorrow or soon, I feel a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment because I have left something behind. My yeah. written works, my conversations with lovely people like you Thank who've you. also come from their own life experience. Um, and that is what I'm going to leave behind. And not to mention, my wife once said to me, Dan, with all the books you've written and all the teachings you've done, it may be that the most important, among the most important things you've ever done is to help raise our daughters. And I really understand that now. Wow. Dan Millman, thank you for being on Awakened Nation, my friend. Thank you. And really, my pleasure, Brad. You bet. Hey, everybody, reach out. Uh, you can find Dan at PeacefulWarrior.com. Pick up his new book, Peaceful Heart, Warrior Spirit, The True Story of My Spiritual Quest. And uh, you can pick that up just about everywhere. It's in paper. Is it in hardback and paperback or is it paperback? Paper paperback? Yeah. And Perfect. there's also a good audio book I produced that my daughter, uh, she and her husband, uh, High Sierra Fame Audio, produced the audio book. And it's as professional as any you'll listen to. Yes. Pick up the audio book because uh, I love listening to those. Uh, and they're great to catch up in the car. So once again, Dan, thank you. It has been such an honor to have you on the thank show you, today. Thank you. 
ladies and gentlemen, tune in next week for another fantastic guest here on Awakened Nation. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for being a big part of the Awakened Nation movement. This is how you can help me and our extraordinary guests. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please share it out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let's grow this movement by word of mouth. Our success will be because of you. Thank you, and see you next week.